This is Smart Politics. I'm your host, Anthony Arnold. This is part three of our series on democracy and demagogues, as well as a broader history of democracy. In the first two episodes, I talked about democracy, its pros and cons, along with its weaknesses, and the democracy of ancient Athens. If you haven't listened to both of those, and I would definitely encourage you to, because what I'm covering in this episode is going to build directly off both of those. If you listen to our conversations about democracy today, then the entire thing has a very mechanical vibe. Voter ID. All of those and more focus on the actual act of voting. And while that's obviously important, I do believe that we should address that part of the process. There's another side of it as well that I think has long gone ignored. People. However voting is done and however those votes are counted, it's people participating. People are electing other people. So then why do people behave the way they do? That's a question for philosophy, which is where I'm going for this episode. The democracy of Athens isn't just important because of the lessons that can be learned from its successes and failures. It's also responsible for providing future generations with some of the most influential writing on government, democracies, and human nature. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle were important sources for our framers, and one of the reasons that our government has the shape it does is because people like James Madison took seriously the lessons they taught, which is what I'm going to do in this episode. I'm going to be examining Socrates and Plato, looking at how their teachings on human nature and political theory combine to form the foundation of generations of political thought. Think of this as the crash course on government and philosophy that you probably never had. If you're ready, then let's begin. The big three of Greek philosophy are Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Socrates taught Plato, who went on to teach Aristotle. And while we don't have many firsthand accounts of exactly what Socrates thought, his ideas are still known through the dialogues that his students would go on to write, in which Socrates is often used to present a particular viewpoint. One of the best known of these dialogues is The Republic. This particular book is incredibly expansive, covering a wide range of topics. But the part that's most relevant to us is book eight, where Socrates discusses not just various forms of government, but also how nations can move from one to the next, eventually ending up with tyranny. Now, this is a quick but relevant note. The timing of this dialogue is thought to be the Peloponnesian War. Now, if you remember the story about the generals I told at the end of the last episode, then I think you can understand how those events may have influenced how Socrates felt about democracy and its risk. Especially when you toss in the final detail that he wasn't just around for the trial, but was, by pure circumstance, presiding over the court itself. So while his biases are evident, they do come from having some personal experience with both the potential of and the problems with purely democratic rule. The big idea presented in the Republic is the one I hinted at earlier. Governments aren't just one static thing, and it's not just possible, but in the opinion of Socrates, inevitable. 
that due to human nature, governments will eventually move through all possible stages before the final stage of tyranny arises. Alongside his considerations of the various kinds of governments are his thoughts on how citizens in each government change as well. So for instance, oligarchies transition into democracies. The reason for this is because in his opinion, the people who benefit from oligarchies having no reason to be worried about money or thriftiness, instead come to desire freedom above all. In essence, he's saying that what people with money want the most of all is the ability to live their life and presumably spend their money as they see fit. This desire widens the gap between the rich and the poor, eventually leading to the lower class frustration that forms the backbone of democratic revolution. In a democracy, the people are constantly in fear of the oligarchs using their wealth and power as weapons to topple the government. This fear, mixed in with anger, then leads to mob rule, which a demagogue whose constant threat we covered in the first episode can exploit in order to institute tyranny. So this is just a basic overview of what he presents. And if possible, I'd encourage everyone to try and learn about it on their own. But I'd like to step back just briefly and examine this first part. So obviously, you're free to agree or disagree with not just my analysis, but with Socrates himself. Nobody, not even revered philosophers, can claim to have perfect knowledge. But I do think his arguments are worth seriously analyzing. Consider the origins of the American Revolution and of our system today. Our revolution was led by people who were extremely well-off. While it's certainly true that there were bottom-up elements, it's also true that the leaders were largely people of resources who were upset that they didn't have as much freedom as they wanted. Before Donald Trump became president, George Washington was by a mile the wealthiest president we had ever had. Thomas Jefferson comes just after him, and James Madison is number six. John Adams, with a 2022 net worth of $25 million, looks like a pauper when compared to the estimate of $700 million for Washington. So the founding class of this country wasn't just comfortably well-off. They were rich. This is a large part of the reason people consider our revolution to be oligarchical in nature, not democratic. It was led by oligarchs, and they were the ones who held the most power when it was over. And what happened next still follows what Socrates suggested. Over time, people, women, blacks, non-landowners, became upset over their lack of power the gaps between them and the upper class. This is how we got the expansion of voting rights that granted new groups power and made the system more democratic. Think about how often we hear people, typically elected officials, talk about the ways that they, who are often wealthy elites, are corrupting our democracy. For progressives, it can be wealthy business owners buying votes with money. For conservatives, it's the cultural elite using their influence to shape society in ways that mostly benefit them. Both of these examples are attacks on an oligarchy that to this day is separate from the majority of us who lack their resources. And the tones of those attacks probably do have the tenor, if not the exact shape, of the kind that demagogues use. Attacks on a shapeless they leave people not just unsure of who exactly to blame, 
but also leave those who feel attacked unable to defend themselves. Those same attacks also ensure that no matter how much progress might be made, the attack can always be reused. But are the people using them demagogues? In many, though not all cases, they aren't. While these attacks do swerve into territory that's not healthy for a democracy, most of them lack the kinds of direct calls to action that represent the most dangerous rhetoric possible. And while there are some people who definitely do cross that line, we're going to save those examples for a later episode. For now, I want to return to the one other component of the Republic that's really relevant. The other big through line is that governments are undone by an excess of the thing that makes them possible. Oligarchies are undone by wealth. Democracy is undone by freedom, which is a curious idea. Because how can there be an excess of freedom? The idea is instinctually repulsive. What Socrates is really getting at is that in a democracy, a gradual loosening of standards occurs. That eventually all desires are treated as equal, no matter their sources. That language itself is warped by the refusal to judge some things as good and others as bad. Because in a democracy, freedom is the ultimate goal. So any attempt to limit the freedom of others by suggesting their chosen pursuits are frivolous or wasteful is something to be avoided. And while he believes this is bad enough for the citizens, he thinks it's a fatal flaw among the ruling class, creating the conditions for leaders who lack both the capacity and desire to truly lead the people. He says that in these conditions, the subjects are like rulers, and the rulers are like subjects. The leaders, being always aware of the power the people possess, are unwilling to challenge the people on whose approval they depend on for their jobs. This idea, much more so than the other ones presented, is a tough one to be comfortable with. None of us, myself included, can imagine tolerating our current leaders preaching to us about the correct way to live. The idea itself is so laughable that it approaches ludicrous. And yet, at least part of the reason we probably find the idea so unthinkable is because those leaders are so obviously inept and potentially corrupt that we wouldn't take them seriously if they tried. But of course, the responsibility for choosing them and continually re-choosing them lies with us, the voters. So we can begin to see how the willingness to vote for anybody eventually produces the kinds of leaders who are unworthy of their power. And those unworthy leaders, having achieved their position not through merit or accomplishment, but entirely through naked political appeal, are then incapable of truly acting in the people's interest or guiding the people towards anything better. As frustrations mount and things spiral further out of control, a person promising sweeping change steps in, combining fear and anger towards the oligarchs, taking advantage of the incompetence of the ruling class. This individual looks like an increasingly good option. They promise to liberate and protect, only to descend into tyranny over time. This is the final step Socrates proposes, the one where a demagogue shows up, tipping the government away from democracy. And with that entirely pleasing note, <laughs> I'd like to bring in Francine to help make sense of this episode and how it links up with what's been covered so far. Francine? Thank you for 
having me again, ending on that very, I forgot how you put it, that very pleasing note. Pleasing, totally uplifting. <laughs> totally not, uplifting. Not at all wow. concerning notes. It's coffee and sunshine, people. Coffee there and sunshine. There is absolutely no connection between uh, Socrates' ideas and where we find ourselves today. No connection at all. You, you know, what I found interesting about Socrates as some of what I remembered about him is he was not uh, credited with really writing a lot of his right. ideas. Yeah. Down. In fact, I don't think he wrote down anything. It was really no. Plato and other students of his yep. who did that. And so I always wondered if there was an interpretation struggle over what he may have meant by you know, some of the things he was expressing and we, we get that third hand or second hand. 100%. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's totally true. Like there's definitely an element of, uh, Plato is, is using his more famous teacher to, you know, say his things. He's really saying what Plato thinks and Plato is using his famous teacher to sort of cover up for his own stuff. I mean, our founders did this. I think I've said before, like John Adams would, would, would always rely on the, the Republic, the document I just talked about to sort of give himself a bit of, you know, wait, I'm a serious yeah. man, John yeah. Adams. And then I think it was in some of their letters, I think it was either Jefferson or Madison had to point out to Adams, like, hey, Socrates actually didn't really like democracy. And the I Republic wanna, isn't really a democratic document. I really want to say Jefferson. It might, it's I think it was like Jefferson. And, yes. and Adams was like, really like, wait, what? I've been going around my whole career quoting an undemocratic document. Slight Thankfully for you, John, nobody else has read it either. So you're fine. <laughs> Right, right. Other and than like four of us founding fathers, none of us know you're you're kind of full of shit right now, John. <laughs> and it's just amazing that you have these oligarchs coming together. They're just ferocious readers and of, of these philosophies. And you kind of wonder why. Like, why didn't they just put together something in their own name? You have all of this wealth. Why yep. go, why bother? trying to connect it to some sort of historical, classical, philosophical uh, foundation. Why not just create yeah. the opposite of what they were uh, complaining about or fleeing? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, we sort of, we said before, we put them so far up on a pedestal, but I always like to bring them back down to our level, not to, to denigrate, but to humanize. Yeah. You know, they knew their ideas were crazy. Like, we are going to suggest something that's completely insane. It's like, what right. if the people have a vote? And, and, like, and let, that is an insane idea. Let's pause right there. Let's, let's like, review the time in which they live and right. the governments of the world that existed. Right. So we're living in the land where monarchs are not representative. I mean, they yeah. are all feared, all powerful. And yep. we're still kind of colonies. Right. And the thought yeah. that you are going from a system where people are deemed by God to be right enough to lead to this other system where everybody gets to lead. Right. Like, that's lunacy. Right. It's completely insane. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a ridiculous suggestion. And so they wanted to give their ideas a little more seriousness by saying, well, actually, we are just fulfilling what Socrates wanted us to do. We're just fulfilling what the ancient Greeks started. Like, well. You know, look, we've all we all do that. Like, you know, it's like it's like when you're writing a paper in college or high school right. and you like quote someone who's definitely smarter than you at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, 
maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, but this person definitely does. And you know, I am merely saying what they said. I'm so just my paper, what they said. Right. my paper must be great. Right. You know what I mean? Like you're not just challenging me, you're challenging like John Locke. Who who among us hasn't in government? Use John Locke to prop up a paper. <laughs> okay, yes, I, I convicted as charged, um, and and that that in line there there I think is why you know I, I we see a lot of movement around or a lot of people jockeying to try to not only understand but to interpret what it means to be self governing, what it means to be yep. democratic, because still you have this this is all happening and you still have this elitism that is in the air yeah. right? because they don't want to be yeah. the same as everyone else. So no. how, do, what type of, how do you create a government no, that don't. says that, okay, you guys get to vote like me, but you're not like me. Yeah. And, and you know, the tensions that, that I covered in the first part of this episode, you know, this tension between oligarchy and democracy, the idea that a democracy is constantly looking over its shoulder for, for the oligarchy behind it. Yeah. It knows from it knows where it came from, and yeah. it knows that the oligarchy is never truly dead. And this mm-hmm. is, you know, this idea is the one that, whether it's Socrates or Plato through Socrates, whichever one, this is the idea he's getting at: is that in a democracy, the people are constantly looking over their shoulder for the oligarchs that they know are there. They know. I mean, and you look at our system we have today, and we know it's true that mm-hmm. there are really very wealthy, powerful people. Who are corrupting the systems we have mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. You, you can't try and telling us that like a Jeff Bezos doesn't have more power than me. I'm not a fool. Right, right. I'm aware that like Elon Musk matters more than I do in a democracy. But, but his rom- vote and voice is more important than mine. Right. But the romantic version of democracy says that Jeff Bezos and, and right. others like him, we all stand at the same election line and we right. all vote in the cold right. and we all cast our vote. Right. And, you yeah. know, we, we yeah. all kind of are like, that's the great equalizer. But then we have this rise of demagogues, which is right. going back to the exploitation that right. kind of happens with democracies like ours when they're looking over their shoulder, wondering right. when the oligarchs are going to like play their cards. Exactly. And so you turn to someone who says, well, I will protect you from them. Mm-hmm. said the reason your system is failing is because those people are stopping it from failing and if you mm-hmm. give me power i will go after them on your behalf this is a really classical through line that demagogues have always used um but in our system they still have to ask for power don't they right. they don't just right. get to come up not right now at least they don't get to come up and not face, yet <laughs> hopefully not just, ever and just take a crown and put it on and say, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, they still have to ask us for permission, which means they still have to convince us that somehow their brutal use of power will benefit us. Um, and when you look, the rise of the Nazi party that eventually culminates in Hitler, this was their line, which was like in this post-World War One, we are being beaten down by these faceless elites who are beating down Germany. You know, as people know, people may or may not know, post-World War One, Germany was hammered because of what they did. Horribly, horribly. And, and that, everybody's probably seen the picture of the lady with the wheelbarrow of money trying yep. to buy bread. Right? Yep, yep. And, mm-hmm. and, and so this idea that they're being hammered by elites sort of yeah. starts forming this basis of anti-Semitism and then of the 
larger Nazi party that Hitler eventually like rides and Mussolini was the same idea. Huey Long, which, you know, we talked about here, we'll talk about these people later in later episodes. That was what he was writing is that we are being beaten down here. What was it? Louisiana. Like we're being beaten down here by this elite who are stopping us. And so, and yes, like, like Donald Trump, like I'm not going to beat around the bush. Like the core of his message is a, is a demagogue one. So like, mm-hmm. I will beat down your enemies on your behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, because they, the mysterious elite are strangling, you know, they're strangling our country. They're strangling you. This is the core of their message. And it's an effective one because again, the people are aware that there are actually people with money and power and wealth like Bezos and Musk and even people you may like, like a Bill Gates. Like Bill Gates, I don't think is a bad person, but I also think Bill Gates is infinitely more powerful than me. And yeah, Yeah. it's because he has money. Mm -hmm. And like in a Mm -hmm. democracy, that's kind of messed up. (laughs) You know, I think what's interesting is that how does a demagogue separate themselves from the very class in which they exist? Like a Donald Trump, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, the blood of my people struggle of my people. I know what my people are going through type of thing. So how does that, how does that happen? And that, you know, that's a really, that's a great question, right? Because Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, like Donald Trump is a billionaire. (laughs) (laughs) He has admitted that he has corrupted the system on his behalf. Part of his appeal was like, I know how to corrupt the system because I have corrupted the system. Well, he didn't say corrupt. He says, I know how to work the system. Right. I know it is broken because I myself (laughs) have used it because it is broken. But that is how I I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Okay. He's like a criminal who's like, I know your house is unsecure because I broke into it. It's like, okay, you might have it's something like, to say. Okay. Yes, interesting. <laughs> I stole your Xbox. That's how I know it's stolen. I'm the one that stole it. <laughs> like, interesting. Okay. Tell me, tell me more. So, like, that's the and so yeah, the question is, how does someone like that, like you said, move out of the class that he and it's almost always a man, though. <laughs> Not lately. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) love to see women embracing their inner demagoguery. You know, it's almost always the guys. Well, how does a guy like that escape his class? Yeah. Um, And this is where I think what they previously would have called this was, uh, they would just talk about like dangerous rhetoric. Essentially Mm -hmm. what they would have said was, it it is through this manipulative speech. Yeah, you know, I I agree with that because we definitely wouldn't have elevated it to demagoguery. We would have said dog whistling at the very least. Yes, um, yes. And that this is, you know, Huey Long and others were, you know, yes. famous for that. But, you know, how does this all play on the Republic? You know? Right. And this is something we're going to get into in the next episode. We sort of talk about how some of this strange alchemy comes together after thousands of years, right? And like, mm-hmm. how does it come together? Why does it come together when it did? And then how did it influence what we have? But one thing I'll, I'll, I'll sort of drop here like in this episode is this is partly why there was this idea that like people, politicians, certainly the president should not campaign for office. Hmm. One of the ideas behind this was that if the president openly campaigns and openly, you know, they, they will be tempted to say and or promise things that start walking democracy down this more dangerous path. We're so far away from that. We're so far removed that I I don't even know how you begin to bring it back because to be honest with you, I do agree that human nature will prevail. What they are basically saying is that, you know, because politics was nasty. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, and um, there was some avoidance of trying to keep certain offices out of the fray. Even lawyers didn't even advertise at no. one time. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to look up now. Like, I, I believe it was 2000. And yeah, I mean, and, and I don't just want people to think this is only like, well, I'm just, you're just being biased against people who you don't like. That's actually not what's happening. What I was just looking up now is I wanted to make sure I had my, in 2008, and I, I like, I liked Obama. I, I still like Obama. But in 2008, like he, he won like, like he, he won an advertising award. Really? I missed that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, and, and I remember, so this was, you know, so this is from ABC news. So I just want mm-hmm. people to know I'm not, this isn't me pulling uh from, you know, right, right. whatever. This is June of 2009. This is from ABC news. Uh, Obama for America. That was his campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, won two Grand Prix awards, one titanium, one integrated in the finales for a like their interactive video. Uh, and these were basically like like ad awards, mm-hmm. you know, like he, he won some awards at Cannes for like sort of what they had done with like YouTube and Facebook and ad awards. Oh, uh, yeah, and they I do won, remember this, yeah, yeah, they, they, they were the first they, campaign to do all of this, yeah. right? Right, so this was for like community and TV advertising, and then I think he won, uh. I want to say that they won like marketer of the year. Their their campaign won some awards that were typically slated for like videos or movies or TVs. And he himself was like nominated for ad stuff. And then he won the Nobel Peace Prize before. And if you look at the timing, he would have been nominated before he actually became president. Yeah. This is yeah. really in the weeds for people. But his he won the Nobel Prize before he had actually taken office. He must have been nominated for he it. Had, yeah, there are a lot of amazing things about that campaign. And, if people want to go back and study, just even the way they raised right, money, they were the first right. to make equalize the whole. Right. Uh, and I just, and what I want to get at is even if you like him, like mm-hmm. I do, the idea that a president is winning the Nobel Prize largely on the basis of their campaign, the idea that the, like, the president is winning awards at film festivals for their campaign is, mm, I see is actually kind of crazy. It, it, it's it is. kind of, it is really far going. removed. Like right. this, is, these are spin campaigns and that's what, you know, that's a really good point. And this is not <laughs> against or for anybody, but no. it, it does speak to the ridiculousness. Right. That how, I think that you're, arrived at. that you're speaking to. Right. Well, yeah. So Going back to Socrates and yeah. some of the things that he predicted would kind of tailspin out of any attempt to create a democracy. Where do you think we are in the process? So, you know, where we are in the process now, I, I don't think it'll come to any shock to anyone who knows me or has listened to my previous episodes or previous shows, previous series, listen to us on any of our other sort of shows we have. I mean, I think we are certainly sliding away from democracy. I mean, I, I don't think there's really much of a question now. We 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 are still a democracy, and I don't think we're going to tip over but into like a it, tyranny. So, so is this a natural evolution of democracy? Should we just accept and receive that? And or should we push back from this? I mean, we should definitely push back. Now, I think some of it is natural. Look. There's never been a, there has yet to be a system of government of any kind created that stood the test of time forever. Right. All democracies, all governments transition. I mean, they all do. Even the most 
powerful, seemingly, you know, oligarchical, tyrannical, monarchical type runs, they, they transition into something else over time. Um, so governments are constantly moving or sliding. That's just the nature of things. Um, so, I mean, we are, we are sliding. Is it this competition for freedoms that, um, are causing the, the, the evolution that we're now experiencing? Is it more than just the person in elected office or is it just how we're changing? I mean, as societies expand and they expand their rights, they, everyone sort of has, as that process happens, it becomes tougher to hold the whole thing together. I mean, I think that is, I think there is a fundamental truth to that. Um, as it expands, you know, widens and gets deeper and broader and bigger, it just, the whole thing becomes a little more unruly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this also was one of the like ideas of our founders was like, there was this question of can large republics work? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, and, that's basically the question I have at the right, end of each of these. Right. Pods. And that was their question. And, and I've said before, if you look at what Madison wrote, like Madison said he thought it could work, but he didn't have like a convincing reason why he thought it. But he Mostly also because, talked about mob <laughs> madness and, and mob right. role and, you know, tyranny right. among the people. I mean, he didn't sell it well for me personally. No. <laughs> he thought it would work because they realized it was more or less inevitable given our geography yeah. that we he, would become a large he republic. said and it had to work it had right? to it has to work yeah, I, yeah i don't have a great reason as to why i think right. it, it has to and so i think that's a really pertinent question i think it remains a relevant question can a republic of this size with this many different groups having so many different interests having so many different things they want and need and desire mm. can all those remain in balance can those things sort of can we all get what we need and want without the whole thing sort of being pulled apart? The answer to that is no. Then that means some of us are going to have to accept less. And that becomes like, who should, who should accept less? Why should I accept less and not you? Why should we accept less and not some other group? Um, these are really, really very hard questions. Um, that go that go right to the heart of like what Socrates said, what Plato and Aristotle said, what you know, Madison and Jefferson and modern political philosophers. And I and I have to correct myself on Madison. What he was really talking about was um, there's the representative democracy and then there was a pure democracy. And I, I think he was more or less speaking against, if my memory serves correctly, the yes. pure democracy. Yes. So not democracy as a whole. So just. Yes. I think we've uh, laid the groundwork for the next episode, which will be, uh, I think, even more of this with some, with, so we'll, we'll see where that one goes. But I think it'll be <laughs> even more of this on the next episode. Okay. Uh, including some, some probably weird takes from me on some stuff. So uh, I hope people are looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. But uh, thank you for joining, Francine. Thank you for having me. As always, I want to encourage everyone to continue the discussion on our social media pages, either on Facebook or Instagram. And like all of our shows here, this podcast is brought to you in part by Eliag Productions, a studio for podcasters and musicians at Pointcast News. To listen to any of our podcasts, you can visit our website at pointcast.news or subscribe to our feed on Apple Podcasts. 
Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and make sure you join us next time.